0: Welcome to the best of Trending in Education. This is Mike Palmer. Thanks again for joining us. For today's episode, we're rolling all the way back to something that dropped March 17th of 2020, was recorded a few days earlier. My interview with my good friend, Adi Hanesh, who has been teaching live online and thinking about how to grow online learning programs for many years. We caught up with one another, in the throes of the first wave. It was really interesting conversation. Adi imparted some of his insights from teaching online and thinking about developing online teachers live online throughout the years. Really worth hearing in more depth. I will say I did add his walk-up music as a little bonus. That wasn't in the original cut. With that, let's take it away with Adi Hanesh talking about how to make great live online teaching happen. The best of Trending in Ed. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. I'm very happy to be joined by an old friend and colleague of mine, Adi Hanash. Adi and I first met many, many moons ago when Kaplan Test Prep was launching It's online program. Adi was one of our first crack staff members who was an innovator back then. Since then, he's spent time really leading the live online program at General Assembly. He's also had other really interesting product management roles in technology, and he's now leaning back in fully into the educational space, particularly in light of the the COVID-19 situation that we're all experiencing. Happy to say both Adi and I seem to be doing well. Adi Hanish, thank you for joining Trending in Education. My pleasure. Uh, long time listener, first time
1: guest. I was hoping there was going to be some intro music. Maybe that's done in post. but you
0: know. It is, but uh, but I, I can maybe hum a you, Bars, if we wanted to keep it light and airy. And it is a time where it's important to have ways to connect besides face-to-face, because we're all... Leading into the new reality of social distancing, both you and I are based out of the New York area, and uh, the world is changing. There is a forcing function around working remotely that we're all gradually coming to terms with. There's a lot of relatively small apartments that have more than one person who needs to shift what was an office-based job into a home-based job. How are you holding up so far? How's that been going?
1: You you know, when we were at Kaplan together and I was working on all of the live online stuff, I was spending about four and a half years working remotely. I mean, I'd come into the New York office occasionally. So for me, I kind of, you know, this was six, seven, eight years ago. At that point, you know, to think now everyone's kind of talking about what it means to work remotely. I think it's an interesting mix of like people who are like, yeah, I've done this for many years. It's not a new concept or new thing. And organizations having to be okay with the idea that if you, let people go home, that they'll still be productive. The most productive I am is when I'm not in the office and I'm working from home.
0: It reminds me of the old William Gibson quote, the future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed. Some of us have plenty of experience with working remotely, distance learning, online learning, all these things. Others, perhaps because they weren't comfortable with it or perhaps because they were never forced to do so haven't had as much experience, there's a lot of fear right now. There's fear around just the virus itself, but there's just fear around change. And I think that's something, you know, knowing you throughout your career, you're someone who has leaned into change and leaned into the move online really throughout. Part of why we're having you on the show today is really to talk about what it's like to teach online because you have the 10,000 hours-ish worth of experience teaching online in some way, shape, or form. You've kept a toe in the water. And what I love about what I've seen from you is that you're not frozen in time. You're not still delivering the old school version. You've been able to to stay, stay modern and update your approach. Can you talk about what it's been like to be an online teacher, someone who's been teaching synchronous online for upwards of 10 years now? What's that been like?
1: The number one thing is when you go to teaching online. Over the last ten to twelve years, the proliferation of some of the blended learning models and flipped classroom models that have started to kind of change the way you might approach teaching online. <clears throat> I would argue that all of this technology, when you're teaching it, you're teaching yourself or you're training others to teach. Your goal is to take the technology that's in front of you and remove it as an obstacle or barrier to do what you do best. And I train instructors pretty frequently still, and, and work with different organizations to help them get their staff. Kind of ready to move to online facilitation or online education and the number one thing i always say is this isn't about changing your personality it's not about creating a formality it's actually about saying who you are in the classroom how you teach your style your personality has a way to translate online the key is to find the right technology to translate it the right way right and you know when we started off at kaplan we were using like adobe connect and it was great because it very much translated what we needed which was the ability to share problems quickly to diagram and whiteboard questions and answers, and then have people be able to interact through some form of chat. Right. And it's a very effective way. And actually, you know, where I think about the evolution of how we've been thinking about what an online classroom should entail, it is very much the traditional concept of an online classroom or, or a webinar in a lot of ways. Yep. And as we started to shift away from that model and realize that the engagement aspect, especially given you have an infinite number of distractions, a Google search away, That your job now as an online educator leading a live session online is that you are bringing their attention back constantly to the material and that's your responsibility. And that's pretty much where the evolution of how I've thought about online education has changed my approach to either the implementation or the training on it is just how do you maximize the engagement and the different ways a person can engage with you in a classroom to keep focus and keep attention accountability is the number one reason why people do courses with instructors so how can you maintain accountability in an online scenario right otherwise why aren't we just googling for every piece of information you want to learn or finding videos on youtube there what is the what is the reason we want the live interaction it's that accountability and that engagement aspect to make sure that i'm actually doing the things i'm supposed to be doing and learning them accordingly
0: and you mentioned both accountability and engagement, which I think is really important as well. And again, bringing it back to the new reality that we're all living in, there's an element of human connection that people are seeking. There's an element of emotional support that people need when they aren't in the same face-to-face environment. I think everyone's feeling that now. You know, social distancing is frequently going to be paired with a sense of isolation and loneliness. What I've been impressed with, and I'd love to hear you talk about more, is how you've been able to make the online experience in some ways as engaging and emotionally rich as a face-to-face experience to the point that you have some, some lofty uh, concepts around how great online learning can be. And I think frequently people think, oh, I think a webinar, you know, yeah, okay, roll my eyes, I got to get in there. But when I've seen great instruction, and I've seen you do this well, among others, it feels really connected in some ways more so even than you would get in a physical classroom. So so I'd love to, I'd love to hear you talk more about that. Yeah, I think
1: a lot of when we think about the forcing function that ha- <clears throat> that's happening now for a lot of organizations that are making the switch and having to train up their staff to teach online as a substitute, it's always this like, well, we're going to have to do it this way until we can get everyone back in person and in, in, in the classroom. Yep. And I'd argue that's the right, wrong mentality. Using this as an opportunity to really explore what you can accomplish and achieve online is really the right way to go about it. Yes. It's a forcing functioning. Yes. It's not ideally happening on a timeline that we would like, you know, a planned timeline that we control. But the fact is, and I, and I stand by this, <clears throat> the online classroom is not an alternate or a secondary substitute to the in-person experience. It's the in-person experience 2.0, the access and the use of technology in the online classroom can let you engage with your students in ways that you cannot do in person and that you cannot control in person. The ability to connect with individuals, both distributed, is, is something that itself needs to be acknowledged as like this mind-boggling opportunity to bring in people of different backgrounds, experiences, locations, geographical, socioeconomical, and to bring that type of perspective into the classroom is itself just an advantage. Now, getting into the technology and the the way to interact, the the most basic example I always gave, and this has held true for 12 years of doing this, when I teach or facilitate an in-person session, usually what ends up happening is I can ask one person one question at a time, and everyone else has to listen to that one person when done right the online classroom, the online workshop, you can have every person interacting and answering every question. And that is through being creative in terms of how you want people to respond and to interact with you. That is also using technology and different polling software out there. There's just a lot of different ways you can get people to be working with you. Now, it does shift your mentality. I've used this example. In-person is like theater, right? You're in the moment, you're live, you can feel the energy, both from the actors and uh, actors can feel it from the audience. And and teaching online in a lot of ways is like film or TV, right? Like you have to put it out there. You're not going to get an immediate reaction, but you have to imagine that's having the intended effect. The fact is that theater, you can only address a much smaller audience, right? In film and TV, you can get larger, massive audiences. You have the ability to play back. You have accessibility things you can address yep. in terms of being able to implement for people who are, are hard of hearing or visually impaired. You can make adjustments. When we, when we start to, or scratch the surface of the accessibility piece to online, how is this a secondary experience? It, it's done properly. Online learning, online education should be better. Should, should, you should walk away from your first online session mm-hmm. and think, wow, I've been doing it wrong in person. Right. The best feedback I've ever gotten from instructors I've trained is they said, oh,
0: I'm actually going to take
1: what I've learned in this and change the way I do this in person.
0: Right. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, too, because it reminds me of the concept of technology-driven versus technology-enabled innovation, where if you're forced into an online teaching environment and you're maybe resistant to it, where you were reluctant to do it to begin with, and you roll your eyes and you say, fine, I'll do, I'll do a webinar because I have to, that will get you so far. But by virtue of how you frame it, it's going to be limited. However, if you think about how this technology enables things that you could never do face to face, even as simple a simple concept as, you know, sharing your screen, you know, opening up to private and public chat, opening up polls in real time, things that you can do face to face, it's a heavier lift where if you're natively in one of the many different environments that are available to us. So the other thing, I, you know, I, I think we both share this concept is like, rather than viewing the technology as a silver bullet. This technology is an enabler and frequently, depending on the context that you're in as a teacher, you're not necessarily going to be making the decision about the, the webinar software, the, the virtual conferencing software, the video chat software that you're going to use. You're going to be asked to teach via a, a platform. Pretty much all of them can create amazing experiences. Some are better than others, no doubt. But I think it's important to reframe the solution space that you get when you get out of face-to-face and you move online. Which features do you think are most transformative or which components of the online learning? You were, you were touching on it a little bit before, but based on your experience, and I do know, you know, a quick note, I do know you're giving a series of webinars now too for both instructors, and also learning leaders and organizations around how to make decisions about for the learning leaders how to make decisions around which software solutions to use. So there's there's a lot to go on there. But also for for instructors who may not have the, the decision rights around which software solution they use, a lot of the techniques and the the things that that you're advocating should work really across the board. So can you talk a little bit about some of those things that that really help create this, this teaching 2.0, this instructional delivery next level that you get when you move online? Yeah, 100%.
1: I'm going to start with a, a concept that I constantly uh, espouse. The best solution isn't always a technical one. And I think that's one of the things is we, we expect that the online education is going to be, there's certain limitations. Yes, of course, the platform where a can or cannot do if you can screen share or not, how you share a deck or a slide is going to vary. But at the end of the day, some of my favorite solutions for how instructors have come up with ways to do examples or problems has just been involved. Really simple things like drawing an answer on a post-it note and holding it up to their camera. I mean, that implies that they have a camera on. So, I mean, there are certain things that do do your students, are they, are, are the students or are the learners on camera and are they able to come on microphone with ease? that's, that's probably the number one question I'll always have. Yep, I actively avoid the word webinar because the mental image it conjures up is what we know it to be. Webinars are powerful tools to do distributed education on general topics across a large audience to get compliance, to get things, you know, this is the sort of thing where it excels at. And what normally is the image that will be conjured up is like a deck on screen, a chat box of some sort, maybe a video of the person speaking sometimes just an audio narration or voiceover. Yep. And, and that is like, I, I have visceral reactions when I see or think of that. Right. And so when you are talking about online learning and online education, interestingly, even though for years we've been doing it differently, such a vast majority of people have that image first. Yep. And so, yes, the technical limitations that I'm always going to ask are, what are the ways that you want your students to engage with you? What are, that is the defining thing. And your point is, is exactly right. Most of the time you as an instructor don't get to choose the software. You don't have uh, green fields in terms of like how you want to approach it. You're limited by what's approved, what's been procured, what your organization uses. And so I think of that as like phase one in technology. You have to pilot with the technology that currently exists to validate that you can do this successfully. And normally what I would encourage anyone who's in that position where it's like, I have a technology, I have to use it is that you wanna actually go through, and I ask this in every training I do, like how do you interact with your students? And you get a pretty standard set of responses. We do, you know, break them out into groups. So breakout rooms, you know, like we have, I'll ask a question and have someone answer, raise hand, you know, put your hands down, and they'll go through and people come up with really creative ways to do it, but you're just like, great. Our job isn't to invent software to do that online. Our job is to translate those experiences in a meaningful way that works online. Mm -hmm. And so then you start to map and it's like you start to grid it up. Great. If I want them to be able to raise their hand, how do they do that in online? Well, if they have cameras, they could physically raise their hand, right? Non-technical answer, but you as an instructor can see. So I spent a lot of time just saying, look, all we want to do is translate the experience and let the technology that we're going to use limit what we can do in the first pilot. But ideally over time, you should be able to choose the technology based off of the set of experiences that you want a person to be able to go through. Mm
0: -hmm. What what made me think about is a couple of things. One is the idea that constraints can drive creativity. So whatever platform you use, there will be constraints. There's no perfect platform out there. So rather than view the constraints as the limiting factor that they are, instead think about them as a way to scope the delivery so that you can be creative in new ways. And then that leads to the second aspect of what I was thinking about, which is the idea that there's more than one way to solve a problem. And the more you can force yourself as an instructor to break your own habits, because the thing about those webinars that can be so agonizing, I, I, I think I may have involuntarily rolled my eyes when you said the word webinar, is that you almost get the sense that It's a trail of tears. Like the instructor is rolling her eyes. The the students who are watching are also rolling their eyes. There's nothing that's really drawing them back in. And that brings full circle to the way you were talking about engagement before. When you teach online, the challenge is the competing things in the world around them that are going to draw the learner's attention away. When you teach online, you have to continue to earn their attention to bring them back in. Frequently, that will be done by breaking your own patterns, by solving a problem in a novel way. You know, you talked about the post-it example. Are there other examples where you've challenged yourself to break your own habits and do something surprising and just feel confident enough to take a chance and then see the level to which that really surprises and changes the way people think about what you're doing?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing that's evolved over the, you know, since it's, I've been kind of in this space is just the comfort people have to be online now. Mm -hmm. I mean, 12 years ago, we were fighting tooth and nail to get people to stay focused and to convince them that they're going to have a valuable learning experience. Mm -hmm. And now most people understand, I mean, how much of their education is already online. They're being posted out to an LMS and they're being told to go to these resources. And so there is almost like an acceptance or an understanding that, you know, technology and online resources are, are just a part of their educational experience. And so I think it's now changing the mentality. I have to force people to do this. Actually, what you need to do is show the value of what you're doing. I mean, how do you create an experience online where people aren't learning by listening, but learning by doing? Mm-hmm. That's, that's the biggest challenge overall. And I think that the driving framework of all of this. I mean, I, I think constantly about it. When, when I when I when I think about teaching online, like the first times and kind of getting people amped up was just the first, like that was a you know an hour long session was just to get them excited about doing this online to convince them that it'll be meaningful. Right now, people understand what a meaningful online experience is. Your your job from day one is to set the tone, set the energy level high, right. and carry it through and show the efficacy of what you're going to be doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, so some of the things that I've Really have grown in terms of what I think is, I, you're never going to find one platform right now, in my opinion, that's going to do everything you want it to do. So, for example, like if your organization uses Google Docs, like you can do a lot of really clever things by integrating a Google Doc into your lesson in terms of having groups go off and share and then enter their information into a Google Doc rather than into a whiteboard or some sort of like sharing screen. Like there's a lot of things you can start doing that are just Completely normal because of you know cloud-based programs right. that we couldn't do ten years ago, right. and so integrating those throughout has been like the exciting thing. Because you know, like right now, I mean, so much of what I I talk about in in my when I train instructors is not like this crazy innovative thing. It is just a way of looking at it that doesn't feel intimidating or yeah. or lesser. Mm-hmm. I think that's the big thing. Your point around a webinar. I think the biggest problem I have, and, and again, th- there's a time and a place for a webinar. If I am a ten thousand person organization and I need everyone to go through a certain compliance training, I'm gonna I as the L&D person would be like webinar, yeah. But webinars are really good when you need to check a box for completion. The question around the efficacy of learning, like how well do people learn it? That like as you start to get into like you know teaching people about programming or marketing or any of the like, kind of digital skills, you're not, you're no longer just checking a box. I mean, how are assessments interspersed throughout? How are you tracking progress? The biggest question I have overall is how is your learning experience integrated with an LMS to provide you as the instructor, the ability to understand how well a person is progressing through the class in such a way that you could be proactive. Now, if we get into like predictive analytics within this, that's like a whole different conversation, but at some level, can I just be able to say, Hey, you didn't do well on this quiz. What's going on? Right. Those sort of interactions that you could do in person without thinking about it, you have to be intentional always online.
0: Yeah. And um, what that takes me to also is the idea of feedback as an instructor, where in a physical environment, face-to-face, you have the feedback of, I look around the room. Are, are, are students, are they checked out? Are they dozing off? Are they leaning in? Are they making eye contact? What's their... What's their nonverbal communication look like? What's my use of the space like? Frequently the knock on teaching online from folks who've been doing that for years is that they're going to lose all that. And what I think your reframing of this is a challenge uh, to that type of thinking because you're saying the types of feedback you can receive in an online environment are either comparable or... In some, ways, in some ways, it may be less, but in many ways, it will actually be better. You mentioned a learning management system, the level to which you can have integrated feedback into how engaged folks are. Are they drifting? Are they staying on task? How are they performing in quizzes? Can you talk more about the importance of feedback and the ways in which it can be uh, perhaps even more, more fully incorporated into an online, ed- online learning space?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'll I'll take this into two approaches. One, it's just like being able to understand, are they getting the information? Are they able to work on it? There's a lot of ways you can use technology. I mean, one incorporation of Slack that I've used in in other organizations, you as an instructor can actually set a series of steps for people and have them indicate when they're done with each step. And it's your way to be able to know, oh, this is taking longer or these are people who are stuck at a specific step. Like that's, that is a relatively low technology solution to even just a real-time understanding of how people are performing. Mm-hmm. And that is on like the low end. If you start talking about integration of LMS components or assessments tied to their LMS, which can drive reports that on a real-time basis or even you know, like that you can generate a- as needed, you should be able to have access to the right information on how a person is performing. So that's the first one, like from actual assessments and and skills-based training, there are ways to understand people progressing. It's your job to adjust the approach you might take. Uh, I mean, I talk about this a lot. Generally, you have about a five-minute window before you lose someone's attention. Mm -hmm. And the way you get their attention back is by incorporating exercises or activities, uh, ways for them to implement. Don't get me wrong. Five minutes isn't like a hard and fast rule. Sometimes you have to explain something a bit more complicated. It'll take you 10 minutes or 12 minutes. But there should be the expectation that at the end of a certain period of time that that person is going to go and try. It. I think the part where people are going to have really poor experiences in the coming years is when someone takes what they think is the theatrical lecture and try to just translate that with a deck and an hour and a half of talking. Right. And you, you are not going to, like you you will lose everyone's attention very quickly. Mm-hmm. The other way to look at the engagement piece is visual cues are one of my favorite things to use. I, I prefer using a, a video platform such as Zoom that allows for a person to come on mic to raise their hand. I I love non-technical solutions. Who wants to volunteer, raise your hand and come on mic, I'll call on you to answer this question. One of the really fun things is you just learn how to ask a question differently. Given that I know a lot of people in education that are now trying to make this transition, I'm putting on a A workshop, it might be a series if if, if people are interested, uh, specifically looking at like the top tools, tips, tactics for teaching online. And, And I'll give you one right now. One of the most important things when you teach online is specificity when asking a question. And there should be three things to every question you ask. Number one, you should be very clear about what the deliverable of the question or the exercise is. Two, how much time they have to do that exercise or to answer or respond to you. And three, the manner in which you want them to respond. If you start to become very creative around having ways, you know, people might type in a response or come on microphone or, or, or raise their hand or any visual cue, the more questions you ask, the more confusion there now is around how I as a student should be giving you the answer. Right. especially with binary questions. You should never ask for a binary question, yes, no, true, false, and expect them to type an answer. If you have a visual cue, ask them to do one or two. Right. Ask them to do uh, nod your head or shake your head no. Like whatever, whatever works for you, that's, that's what you want to be doing. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's such a quick way to do it. And again, super non-technical. My favorite thing is how do you translate calling on a person in the classroom? So same, this is a continuation of specificity when asking a question. If you're in a classroom and you see someone make eye contact, just as about, you're, you're about to ask a question, you know, they're listening to the question. A mistake people make when they start teaching online is they ask the question and then they call on someone. And I promise you, if you do it in that order, you will get the same result 90% of the time. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the question. What was it again? Because you didn't give them a chance to understand that they needed to be paying attention. Right. If you were to set your students up or your classroom up for success, the way in which you call on an individual and do it actively is this. You say their name. You wait about a beat, a half a second or so. You will, if you have a video software, you will see them look up. Like do the kind of like, oh, my name was just called. You know, their attention is with you, and then you ask the question. Mm -hmm. Making those small adjustments, those nuances, again, non technical, but absolutely mean the difference between setting someone up for success in the class to answer questions and to engage versus throwing a lot of things out there and not really giving the structure by which a student should respond.
0: Mm -hmm. Adi, that's great stuff. And I wanted to ask you another question about the other side of the equation because we're coming close to time. We talked about the instructors mainly here. The other set of stakeholders that you're interested in are the folks who make decisions for their organization or their school or their university. Entirely different set of challenges there. It's something that I think we both have experience working on that side of things. You're planning to not just address the challenges of the instructors, but you also want to help the decision makers who are trying to understand how to navigate all this stuff. Uh, I'd love to get some of your thoughts on What's different about that? And I know you're, you're planning a separate webinar, separate amazing learning experience. That there we go. To be online for, for folks who are, or maybe the decision makers for their, their organization or their, their school or university. Can you talk a little bit about that side of the equation? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for queuing that up. So I started with like, oh,
1: I want to put a workshop out for instructors to help them kind of prepare and understand what it means to prepare for their class differently and what it means to engage in the online and to to gauge, you know, interaction. And what became evident pretty quickly was, and and I've worked with a couple of organizations specifically on how to implement this, is that it's very different when you're uh, in L&D or you're someone who's like, I actually am a program manager and now I'm being forced to move this online. And what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And I think the big question that a lot of organizations have are, do we just wait this out and wait until we go back, cancel trainings, or do we spend the investment of time and effort now to move online? And so what my second workshop that I'll be running in the next week or two is going to be focused on is understanding the investment that you have as an organization to make to set yourself up for success in online Mm -hmm. and to think of it in a phased way. Like, you're not doing the full rollout immediately. So what does a pilot look like? And so at the most basic, it's something we talked about from technology perspective. You're not sitting there going, this is the ideal technology we have to use. You're saying, how can we pilot with what's already approved? Right. So we use this video software or we use this chat platform. How can we take what already exists and throw out like a training and see and seed and test and see? So I'm really excited because having worked with L&D folks on their kind of initiatives and now the forcing function around, do we do this now? Do we make the investment? I think that this is a really good opportunity for organizations with large L&D departments to really increase their reach, increase the way in which they interact with their employees, to not make it just L&D is this thing that you go to in person for four hours, but to integrate one-hour workshops, to integrate things throughout the day or throughout their careers to make them better. So I'm excited to really focus not on what it means to teach online, but actually to understand the investment in both the transition internally that is required. I think some of it is a little bit more forced because of the scenario we're in, but you know what change management is required, what sort of project management is, is, is going to be expended. Understanding the technology and the limitations you're at and how you might think of technology in an agile way, as opposed to like, we have to get to this, this is what we need. Let's let's figure out what we're starting with. Mm-hmm. And then last is the training, not just the training, the actual like workshop that you'll be moving online, but the training of the program managers, the training of the instructors to make sure that everyone is set up for success. Yep. Uh, so really focusing on how do I as an L&D person understand the investment I need to make to make this work?
0: Yeah. And uh, plenty to talk about there. And I imagine this topic is not going away anytime soon. The question I have, I guess I have to, Two questions, because generally when we wrap up, Adi, you want to be thinking about what trends in the outside world are capturing your attention. So just more broadly, that's my closing question to everyone. So just keep that in the back of your mind. But before we get there, is this a watershed moment where we may not go back to -to face-to-face in the same way after the coronavirus craze subsides once we're no longer required to be remote? And required to learn online, and we have the opportunity to go back to uh, face-to-face, where a lot of people are more comfortable with that. How much do you think we're going to go back, and how much do you think, when done effectively, people are going to realize, you know, in some ways it's better to do at least some of this this way? I personally think we, this, this is a watershed moment, it's just because of the scale. It's global in scale. And it's such a forcing function to use, to use what you were talking about before, but I, I'd love to get your perspective on this. I hate to take a middle ground. So I'll
1: give you kind of the middle ground answer. And then what my actual belief is the middle ground answer is it depends. It depends on how organizations embrace the online learning and how they manage it, because if they embrace it as a substitute, a negative, like a, the secondary substitute for what needs to happen. Then of course, once it's done, they're like, great, we can go back to in-person and not have to do this again. Mm -hmm. But if they really embrace it for the opportunity it provides, the ability to connect people from a a distributed audience, the ability to use technology in a meaningful way to engage and interact, a a way to keep hyper-interaction as part of the classroom experience, Mm -hmm. my hope is, at the very least, I don't think in-person training is going away. I think it changes the definition of what justifies an in-person training and Mm -hmm. who would need it. I think that there's a lot of opportunities for L&D departments in particular, large organizations. I mean, the ROI is simple. Cost of travel and, and hotels and blah, blah, blah. Like all of the things incorporated with getting a group of people together. You look at that cost and then you look at the cost of actually implementing an online training and you can see clear ROI on, on just the implementation of it. And so I think a lot of organizations are going to see this and think of it as a cost-saving opportunity. And if we can prove out which when done successfully, and the thing that that's why I'm kind of really excited about working with the organizations that I have been is if we can prove out that you can create the training to be as successful, if not more successful for in-person, then yes, absolutely, we should be at a spot where we're not going back. Yeah, That this becomes the standard. So Mm -hmm. that's my middle ground answer. My clear answer and belief, 100% absolute. Some organizations are well ahead on the curve on this and have been doing online for a long time. It's very strange to me to be hearing talk about like remote as this new thing Mm -hmm. when, you know, you and I have been doing this for 12 years. Organizations are built around remote employees. Like it's not a question of does it work? We know it works. Mm -hmm. It's a question of mindset shift. Can we get people who are traditionally not comfortable with this concept, comfortable with the idea that one, it is not only as effective, potentially more effective. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think this is going to be true when when organizations start to really look at what happened to their productivity when people move to remote and studies suggest the productivity is going to go through the roof. Mm. Why would you, why would you not then implement that or incorporate that as a, like a fabric of your organization's DNA at that point? Yeah. So my hope, my optimistic hope is absolutely this is a watershed
0: moment. Yeah. And by a watershed moment, I'm not saying we, we, we're desperately going to need human contact once things subside. I've, I've been joking about virtual happy hours, you know, where an open invite, you know, hang out in a Zoom room with me while, while we both drink in our respective homes. You know, like, I think, I think that type of thing will start to happen. But once we're able to go back out and be social and be physically present with other humans, that's part of what we're wired to do. So I'm not saying that's going to go away. But I think a lot of the, the friction that we've seen around, well, online education, online learning, remote workforce, yeah, not quite for me. I really just thrive more in the face-to-face environment. I think that way of thinking, the people who think that are now going to be forced to experience something different. And if they're flexible enough in their thinking, they, they're likely to surprise themselves or be surprised by the experiences they engage with. So now, Adi, using your example, I saw we made eye contact when I said your name. What trends outside of what we've been talking about and maybe asking a little bit outside of the COVID coronavirus conversation, what trends are capturing your attention these days that you think are going to really be transformative to the the next, say, the next 10 years that that we're heading into?
1: The online education space in particular or to to remote?
0: Oh, take me a picture like talk about whatever you want. You know, if you think esports is something to talk about, I'm happy to talk about about whatever you like, you know?
1: So one, I I agree with your point that nor did I ever think that you were saying that like in-person is going away. Machine learning in general, personalization algorithms for helping understand or helping personalize or create recommendation paths for people that actually take inputs from a person's learning and then prescribes them the next, like their next path. I mean, I I think that we're still barely scratching the surface on that. We think about it as like personalized pathways, but imagine learning math with a program that is constantly pushing you to go to the next level without leaving you behind. Mm -hmm. Um, I think about when we think, you know, traditional textbook and homework, right? You would do like problems one through 31 odd. And we know that by 31, it's like one of the hardest problems you get. What happens if you stop understanding how to do problem 11? So the technology that exists around that to help us, that's always going to be the thing that I think is interesting. We have programmatic advertising, the idea that you get a certain ad served to you because you're the right audience to be receiving it at the right time. But like, what does programmatic education look like? How do I right. get to a point where you're getting the right information served to you when you need it based off of the fact that if you look at all of the data you provide, Google knows everything you've ever searched. Right. So like, using that for good and being able to prescribe what you might need to learn is always exciting. I mean, it, it, it's a big challenge. Uh, then last, I mean, last but not least, is the, the thing that I'm particularly passionate about and interested in is the concept of accountability. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that that's such a big piece around education, especially as we transition to online. So what is the tooling or responsible, the ways in which we can use uh, technology to hold people accountable? I mean, the fact is, if you wanted to spend enough time Googling, you could find every piece of information about basically anything already out there. Why, why do people want to still take a course? And even when they take that course, why is the completion rate still significantly lower? This is not just an in-person education. This is just continuing ed in general. Yep. And this is even exacerbated by online. Right. So I think the big challenge overall is going to be all of the technology out there to hold people accountable or keep. help help people stay accountable to themselves to stay on track for learning.
0: Yeah. But at the same time, something that I think you're, you're pointing out throughout is the role of the human instructor to sort of knit together the accountability and to, to bring the humanity back to the experience for the learner, which is something uh, I've seen you do uh, really wonderfully in in a bunch of different contexts. So so thanks again for joining, Adi. We'd love to get you back uh, downstream. If folks want to learn more about uh, you and, and what you're doing, is, is there anywhere they should go? Where, what, what should people look for? We'll share out your upcoming webinars. I imagine there'll be a series of them as everyone's scrambling to figure out how to move rapidly online. Where should people go if they wanted to figure out what's going on?
1: Right now, I think the best is if you is to find me on LinkedIn and follow me. So I'm Adi Hanish, pretty easy to find. I don't think there's too many people with the same name. And I'll be posting pretty much as my primary channel. And then as you register for something, I'll be putting together an email list and I'll just share with anyone who's ever registered any of the upcoming workshops that I'll be putting on.
0: Awesome. The just-in-time moving quickly that is becoming the reality for all of us as we we struggle with the COVID-19 pandemic. But it's great that folks like yourself, Adi, uh, and others are are leaning in to try to provide folks with answers. and And thanks for joining. Really appreciate the time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great stuff there with Adi Hanesh. We'll hopefully get him back on sometime soon to hear what he's been up to and what perspective he might have now that we've been dealing with the pandemic and reframing our lives. Now we are potentially reaching some... New blend. What does that mean for teaching? What does that mean for online teaching, online learning? Really interesting stuff to dig into. And with that, we'll wrap up this episode of The Best of Trending in Ed. We have one more Best of Trending in Ed that will be dropping on Monday, Labor Day, as we wrap up season six of Trending in Education. And be on the lookout for season seven of Trending in Ed. As things heat up heading into the fall of 2022, thanks as always for listening.